take your hymn book and turn with me to hymn number 278. 278, how can it be that thou shouldst love a soul like me? Oh, how can it be? Let's stand, please, as we sing to the Lord this evening. Please be seated. Unite our hearts and heads around the throne of grace. Let's all bow and seek the Lord. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we approach with boldness this throne of grace. It does our souls good as we come to Thee, reminding ourselves that we've come to a King. Not just a King, but the King of all kings. We come to one tonight who does as He wills, who has all power. A King who is absolutely sovereign in all things, in all places, all times, all situations. We thank Thee that as we come to this King, 
We know, O God, that Thou art a very beneficent King. Thou art so kind to all Thy people. As the King of all kings, Thou hast all riches in Thy Son, Jesus Christ. We are glad, Lord, that there is not a need that we will ever encounter in this life which Thou canst not satisfy to Thy abounding riches. How rich we are, Lord, we fail to realize that so often. Sometimes, our God, we act as if we're spiritual paupers when the truth is we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ, Thy Son. And as Thy Word says, all all that belongs to Christ belongs to us. How we thank Thee for that truth. Thou hast given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We indeed, Lord, are poor in ourselves. In ourselves, we confess our absolute bankruptcy. But oh, in Christ, how wealthy we are. How much, how much, Lord, we can't begin to fathom the riches that we have, all those spiritual blessings in heavenly places that are ours in Christ Jesus even now. Tonight, Lord, we've come to thy house that we might get another sight of what we have in our Savior. We might get, Lord, another glimpse of one of these glorious riches that make us so rich. We we acknowledge our God at thy throne of grace that it is going to take much grace and thy mercy for that to be accomplished. There is this flesh within all of us, even though we've been saved by sovereign grace and we have been made new creations in Christ Jesus. We know, as Paul said, that in our flesh there dwells no good thing. And that flesh is an enemy of the spirit that dwells within us. They war one against the other, as Paul says in Galatians, so that we could not do the things that we would. So, our God, we realize that we need grace tonight. Else this will just be a a sermon that's preached. It won't be a message from God to our souls that actually transforms us. So we pray, Lord, for mercy. We ask that thy spirit would overcome all the opposition of the flesh within and the devil without. And we'll be, be richly blessed tonight as we hear the Lord Jesus speaking to us through his word. Our Father and our God, we ask the same for all of our congregations scattered throughout the North American continent down into Central America, our works, Lord, in, in the UK, our works in the mission fields in Nepal and in Africa, wherever, Lord, we have sent missionaries to preach Thy Word in Spain as well. Lord, we need, all of our works need a visitation from heaven. Thou dost know that there is so often the temptation to grow weary in well-doing. Paul had to come to that work at Thessalonica that had been so blessed by thee, that was special in so many ways. Their faith had been spoken of throughout the whole world. So they were examples of the flocks of God, and yet Paul had to remind them and to encourage them not to grow weary in well-doing. Give us that same encouragement we ask in our congregations Lord, there's always, where there are people, there will always be troubles. Where there are people, there will be opposition from hell 
and from the world. We ask our God, therefore, that thou wilt come to our churches tonight, to our ministers, to our elders and our deacons, to our whole denomination, and thou wilt bless it with thy presence. Thou wilt bless it, Lord, with thy success. And we use that word, Lord, scripturally. We think of that promise to Joshua that if he would have that word of God on his tongue, as it were, he would believe that word and obey that word, he would have good success. Grant to us, we pray, that good success that is promised to a people who take on board the word of God, who meditate upon it. It dwells in their hearts, in their heads, that's upon the tip of their tongue, always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Father in heaven, we ask you to help us to sing tonight, to sing with our hearts and not just with our lips and lungs, to sing Father in heaven in a way that glorifies thee. And we sing, Lord, because we believe what we're singing. Oh, for grace to do that, we ask thee. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 21. John's Gospel, chapter 21. Closing chapter of the well-known Gospel. The disciples have seen the Lord more than one occasion. Peter the fisherman says to them, I'm going fishing, fishing. And they went with him back to their old trade. And the Lord appears to them again. Very important lessons here. John chapter 21. We're going to read the first 17 verses. John 21, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. They were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Canaan and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto him, I go a fishing. They say unto him, we also go with thee. And they went forth and entered into a ship immediately and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, after he was, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, 
Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come, dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved. Because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. We'll end our reading there, trusting God to add his own blessing to it for his name's sake. Please take your hymn books now and turn with me to hymn number 490. 490, what though clouds are hovering o'er me, 490, and we'll ask you to stand and cling, don't cling, but sing all four of these stanzas, Jesus only.
please be seated. We welcome you back again to the Lord's house in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray that God will have a fresh word for you from His word. It's all about hearing what the Lord has to say. I just pray that I'll be hidden behind the Lord Himself. I'll fade away and you'll see God, you'll see Christ. And your hearts, to take the words of Wesley, will be strangely warmed by what you hear. Uh, God is still in the business of speaking to His people. That never changes. And I can tell you there's always a word in season for you. If you'll just say, Lord, speak to me. I need to hear from heaven tonight. And uh, He knows that need far better than you know it. And He knows what I need to say and what I don't need to say. And I trust tonight that whatever is said, it'll be according to God's will. And you'll find that when you go out tonight, you'll find yourself saying, I was, I'm glad I was there, that the Lord spoke to me tonight. That's what we need all the time, a word from God, a word for our hearts. And I pray that will be your experience as well this evening. Where is the camera? The camera's there for the service, right? Good. I wonder, I forgot this morning, welcome the webcast viewers. Uh, I don't get to do this every Sunday anymore, so I forget about that little, glad you're here. Wish you could be here, but uh, glad at least you've been able to tune in tonight to hear the Word of God and pray that you'll also get a word from the Lord for your own hearts this evening as you listen to the Lord's Word. Tuesday night is the time for prayer at 7 p.m. here in the church, a time, a season to get before God's throne and on our faces before Him that we will get it, uh, that you need your batteries recharged. That's just the fact of the matter. And that's no better place to do that than to come together on Tuesday night for that midweek prayer meeting. Next Lord's Day, 11 a.m. for the morning service, 5.30 p.m. for a time of prayer, and then 6 p.m. for the evening. That'll be my last Lord's Day with you. I originally hoped to come for three Sundays, but uh, there's a conference in, uh, you probably don't know John McKnight, uh, in Maryland, he has a church. They've asked me to come for a number of years to their Reformation conference. I've had to turn it down sometimes because of my wife's illness or because I had other meetings. So this year I was able to come and I wanted to do that. And that's at the end of this month, a four-day conference. So I'll not be able to be here with you. Wish I could, but um, I thought it was need to really help those folks out. Been there for a while and was looking forward to going and bringing God's Word. So I don't know who the next preacher is, but He'll be whoever the Lord sends, that's the main thing, and I'm sure he'll come with a word in season. If you've got a phone, a cell phone, please make sure it's turned off or placed on vibrate so there's no interruptions during the actual service. I've made that announcement probably for 25 years in my meetings, and funny enough, there's always somebody who, who's heard that announcement and they just didn't check their cell phone and make sure it was off, and there goes the phone off in the middle of the message. So just make sure it's on off or placed on vibrate. There's a plate in the back for any offerings if you have to give to that. And before we come to God's Word, number 464, 464, nearer, still nearer, close to thy heart, 464. Let's stand one final time before we hear the Lord's Word.
Please take your seats and turn with me in God's Word to the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Begin reading in verse 1, Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1, let's hear the Lord's Word. The song of songs, which is Solomon's, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine, and because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is as ointment poured forth, therefore do the virgins love thee. Draw me, we will run after thee. The king hath brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. We'll end our reading in verse 4, asking God to bless it for his own sake. Would you bow your head with me for a moment? Let's seek the Lord's face for his help. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, we come yet again to the throne of grace to ask for that promised help. What good, Lord, is the preaching of the Word of God if thou thyself dost not attend it with power? We ask for that divine energy, for the anointing of the Spirit of God, the fullness of the Holy Ghost, that he would bear along thy servant as he preaches thy holy word and Thou wilt, Lord, give the hearing ear again tonight. Thou dost know our, our tendency, Lord, the thing we have to fight continually to be sermon tasters. Save us all from that. May there be the reality tonight that it is Christ himself who is speaking to his people, that there is a precious word for us, to not only hear, but to believe it wholeheartedly, to take it on board, to embrace it, to rejoice in it. We can't do that without Thee. So, Lord, come now, we ask Thee, and show Thyself strong. Make bare Thy mighty arm, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. My text this evening is found in the first stanza of Solomon's song. After the introduction in verse 1, he writes, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Before I say anything about the verse itself, allow me to remind you that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God-breathed, which means it is divine in origin. Of course, you, you believe that, you, you know that. While he used various men to put this writing, the, the revelation of his will over thousands of years, all the words come from the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So while Solomon wrote this song, the true author is the Holy Ghost, as it is with every book of the Bible. 
So while most of the Bible was written in prose, it's obvious that God thought it good and wise to also use poetry as a means of communicating His truth to men. The five books of the Old Testament, referred to as the poetic books, are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Since they are poetic books, it means that they are marked not only by rhythmic structure, but by the frequent use of figures of speech and imagery to express God's truth in a more imaginative and concentrated way than you would find in the prosaic portions of the Lord's Word. For example, instead of stating plainly that the man who meditates in the Word of God is going to be the one who experiences growth and uh, spiritual prosperity, the Holy Ghost used this imagery to state that same truth in Psalm 1. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth it shall surely prosper. That's poetic. Stating the same truth, but in a very different way. To teach the church the doctrine of the Lord's care and provision and protection of His people, the Spirit could have said that in very plain language and has in, you know, casting all your care upon Him for He careth for you. He uses poetry in Psalm 23 to state that same truth. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And the valley of the shadow. It's all poetry. Whether or not you have a poetic bone in your body doesn't make any difference. The fact is, God has deigned to teach us doctrine through these poetical books. So the, the, the Song of Solomon is a book that is overflowing with figures of speech, imagery, and very intense emotional expressions like the one before us tonight. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. The challenge for anyone studying this book is to come to an understanding of the doctrine, the reality that underlies the imagery, the concrete object that is behind the figure of speech. You've got to interpret it, right? It's poetry. And what's the meaning behind it? There's no denying that there is no Old Testament book that presents a greater challenge in doing that than the Song of Solomon. Some have compared the Song of Solomon in that category to the book of Revelation for the difficulty it presents for the interpreter. There's so much symbolism and imagery in Revelation like there is in the Song of Solomon. It's interesting to note that John Calvin did not write commentaries on the Song of Solomon or on the book of Revelation. 
and that was one of the very reasons why he didn't. The difficulty of getting a hard and fast interpretation of all that was being said. But aside from these various challenges and the difficulties that arise in interpreting this book, the bigger issue of the spirit of the Song of Solomon deals with identifying the major theme of the book. What is it? What's it all about? For the most part, commentators have fallen on basically one of two sides. Side one, either this book is an allegory about the relationship that exists between Christ and his bride, the church. Solomon is representing Christ, and the Shulamite is the one representing his people, the church. Or it is to be taken not as an allegory, but literally, and is therefore simply a book about how to have a healthy marriage relationship. The title of a recent commentary on the Song of Solomon expresses that view quite well. The title is The Song of Solomon, Love, Sex, and Relationships. You have no doubt about his view, what he's taking when he gives that as the title of his commentary on the Song of Solomon. In his introduction to his commentary, this author writes that the Song of Solomon, I quote, is the longest sustained narrative in the Bible on human sexuality, unquote. Now, while not all of the commentators who take this little approach of the Song of Solomon are as blunt as that, yet they still come to the same position. For instance, Albert Barnes, 19th century Presbyterian preacher in North America, the United States, he said this, the Song of Songs is, in its essential character, an ideal representation of human love in the relations of marriage. Now, I do not take that second position that is simply a marriage manual for married couples to how to conduct a happy marriage. Along with the vast majority of the older divines, including the Puritans, the Westminster Assembly, the Scottish divines, Spurgeon, just, just to name a few, I believe this book is an allegory about the relationship between Christ and His church, Christ and the believer. Having said that, I would say yes, there is certainly application you can draw from the marriage relationship, help you can find there, but that's not the primary purpose the book was written. It's not a marriage manual, not on the, the level between earthly husbands and wives. It's about the marriage relationship between Christ and the church. So, with that in mind, what is my text in verse 2 really about? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for his love is better than wine. What I want to preach on from that text is the Christian's desire 
for spiritual intimacy with Jesus Christ. The Christian's desire for spiritual intimacy with Jesus Christ. Two points I want to cover this evening. I'll spend the bulk of my time on the first one and wind up with the second one. The first thing I want to deal with is the Christian's desire to be kissed by Christ. And the second point is the reason she desires his kisses. The Christian's desire, number one, the Christian's desire to be kissed by Christ. Y'all ready? Let's dig into it. However and whenever it came to be, you'll find in Scripture that the kiss was intended to show one of two things. One of the purposes was to show honor, reverence, subjection. For example, in Exodus chapter 18, verse 7, And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and did obeisance and kissed him. He was showing his subjection to his father-in-law, his submission to him, viewed him as a superior. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 14, Orpah, remember she left, went back to Moab with all its idols. Moab kissed her mother-in-law before doing that. It was a kiss of respect, honor, but she wasn't going with her, unlike Ruth. Where you go, I go. Where you die, I die. Your God is my God. So Orpah's kiss was a kiss of respect. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, Elijah meets with God in the mount after running away in fear of Jezebel. He thinks that he's the only true worshiper left in Israel. I, only I am left. Of course, that wasn't the truth. God said, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. They've not done reverence and obeisance to this false god. That's one way that kissing is used in the Old Testament. But the primary use of this word in Scripture is an expression of love and affection. For example, in Genesis 29, Jacob meets Rachel for the first time, and Jacob kissed Rachel. Was this a case of love at first sight? Or maybe it was this affectionate kiss of a cousin, because she was his cousin. But the point is, it was affection being shown. And when Laban hears that his sister Rebekah's son has come to town, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. It was a kiss of affection. You'll then go on in Genesis and, and read about Laban kissing his daughters and grandchildren goodbye when Jacob decides it's time for me to return home with my wife, wives and my children. You can imagine that father and grandfather kissing his two daughters and his grandchildren, not knowing when he would see them again. It was a kiss of affection. And then Esau kisses Jacob 
and all his family when seeing him for the first time in decades. And you'll read of Joseph revealing himself to his brothers in Egypt. He's been hiding behind his makeup and everything. And he, I'm Joseph. And he just falls on their necks and kisses and weeps and kisses and weeps. Finally able to reveal, it was, it was, he loved them so much. Affection. Again, you may recall David and Jonathan having to separate because of Saul wanting to kill David. It's the last time they meet. The scripture says, and they kissed one another and wept one with another until David exceeded. Deep affection between them. Even when using this word in a very negative context, the idea is still that of love and affection. Is there any better example than that of Judas in the garden coming to kiss Christ, but it wasn't like it was showing affection, but it was a kiss of betrayal. But still the point is, it was supposed to be a kiss of affection. So here we are in the Song of Solomon, and we hear the believers saying to Christ, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That means that this verse is part of that revelation, inspired to help God's people. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That's how this love song between Christ and his church begins. What does this desire for Christ's lips indicate? Certainly out of the abundance of her heart, her mouth is speaking, and what does it speak? It speaks in the first place of her desire for Christ's kisses. To indic- it indicates this, that Christ truly loves her. This desire she has reveals that she believes that Christ truly loves her. The first one who speaks in this love story is the spouse of Christ. It's not Christ. It begins so abruptly so boldly. There's no easing into it, you know. There's no preamble. Right off the bat, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That's being quite up front, don't you think? Yes, she is the first one who speaks of her desire for his kisses, his affection. But why is that? Well, quite simply, it's because he has already kissed her. He has already expressed his love for her, and therefore she wants more. She's in love with him because she knows, she knows that he is in love with her. Isn't that how it works? Isn't that how it works on the human level? 
Isn't that how it, at least that's how it should be working between husband and wife. The, the, more, the more the wife is convinced that her husband loves her, the more she wants that love to be shown. Think for a moment with me about some of the Lord's kisses. We've got to to keep with the analogy, with, with, with the story here. What are some of Christ's kisses towards His people? Those clear indications that He loves His people with an everlasting love, a love that many waters cannot quench. Well, first off, there is, is there not, the kiss. This is showing a kiss is an indication of affection. It's an indication of love. There is first the kiss of election. Wasn't that a great kiss? The kiss of election. Did it not all begin here? Uh, Let me ask you the question, why do we want to experience more of these expressions, more of these displays of the Lord's love for us. Why do we want to know more of it? Why do we want to be more assured of that in the first place? Why is that desire even there? Because from the, before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of time, God set His love upon a people called His chosen, called His elect, whatever word you want to use, and He purposed to save them from their sins, from Satan and from eternal damnation. He did not pass over them and leave them to their sin. He chose them to be His, this is be the bride for Jesus Christ. This will be the bride for my son. I'm giving them to Him out of my love for them and my love for my son. They're my love gift to my son. That's why we have a desire to know more of Christ's love in the first place. Anyone who has never been elect by God will never have that desire, never in a million, billion years. This is where it all starts. The kiss of election. Who were these people he chose to be the bride of his son? Every last one of them was a fallen, depraved, sin-loving, God-hating rebel. That's us. Born depraved. Not one of them was loved and chosen because of anything that God foresaw in them. Then that would be earned. It wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be in spite of them. It was in spite of how wicked we were that God set His love upon us. This kiss of election, it came to you and it came to me for reasons, for reasons the Lord has yet revealed. He says, I love you because I loved you. It pleased Him to kiss us. It pleased Him to make you and to make me part of the bride of Jesus Christ. And that kiss will never be taken back. It will never be undone. 
you know, wasn't that, what, wasn't that the point that we sang tonight? When you, when you get this, when it's not, you know, when, when the doctrine of election is not just some point of Calvinism that you want to argue about and debate people with, but it's actually a truth that touches your heart right where you live, that the Lord actually chose me and did not leave me to my sin. He could have passed me by, and if He had passed me by like He did so many and left them to the just judgments of their sin, there'd be no hope for me. I'd be headed for hell. But He didn't. He set His love there. And any time you sit down and ponder the truth that the Lord chose me, not for good He found in me, but he loved me because he loved me. Then you want more of that love. You want more kisses. Isn't this great? Wonderful. There's also the kiss of the cross. Not just election, but the kiss of the cross. Oh, you know John 3.16 so well. God so love the world, it doesn't, it doesn't mean the word so is not he loved them so much. That's not the meaning of the Greek word. He loved them like so. He loved them in this way, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the kiss of the cross. That's the kiss of redemption. The word redemption, speaking of buying us out of the marketplace of sin. Slaves to the devil, slaves to hell, slaves to debauchery of all kinds. Could not break the chains, could not get ourselves out of the bondage of sin. But Jesus Christ at Calvary, by that blood, redeemed us, redeemed by his blood, no longer slaves. Hmm? No longer. Well, that's love. Love a slave, an old slave, a slave to sin. That kiss of the cross is the kiss of forgiveness. <clears throat> I don't know when it was for you, but I remember the day when I got that kiss from the Lord. I was a boy of 12, sitting on the back row of a Baptist church, and I'd heard this, been brought up in this church, Sunday school class, heard the gospel many times, but that day I heard it differently. 12 years old. Sins of that summer were just flooding into my mind. And I knew that if I went out of that church building and I somehow was killed in a car wreck, I was going to go to hell. I saw my sins. I wonder, wonder, the Lord had his plan to save me that day. That day I received the kiss of forgiveness all because of Calvary. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. How many times have you received that kiss of forgiveness from the Lord? Haven't you gotten it every day of your life? You, you, you've done things you're ashamed of, haven't you? I mean, if, if we could project on the back wall just a list of your sins, You'd be mortified, would you not? I would. 
But every time you've gotten that kiss of forgiveness, every time, Lord, forgive me, then comes the kiss, I forgive you. The same sins repeated, I forgive you. That's love. Oh, I, I could, you know, go into a little application and do a little marriage counseling here, how that should be going on in the home. Constant need of forgiveness between husbands and wives. But the bigger picture is this, Jesus continually forgiving the sins of his bride because he loves them. You want to know more of that love when you experience that. The kiss of justification, we're always righteous in his eyes. Accepted in the beloved. Can't get over that. With our Savior's garments on, as holy as God himself. What about the kiss of adoption? Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Adoption. Brought into the family of God, not born into it. That's regeneration. Regeneration is not adoption. Brought, placed as sons into the family of God with all the privileges of those in the family of God. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. All that belongs to Christ belongs to us. Joint heirs. And the spirit of adoption sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. We know that we're sons of God. The spirit bears witness that with our spirit that we are the sons of God. That we have been adopted into the family of God. Now that's love. He's... He sent me along tonight, has he not, to reaffirm to you that you have full access to him as a child does to his father because of this kiss of adoption. You have full acceptance before his throne because you've received the kiss of adoption. You have full assurance that you'll always be the child of God. That when you're placed as a, a son in his family, he never will disown you. He never will cast you out. You will not apostatize. You will not fall away. You will not. Because then you're greater than God. Who will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? You're in the hand of the Father. You're in the hand of Christ. And no one is able to pluck you out of that hand. That is because of the kiss of adoption. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. There's also this kiss of communion. You know, after the Lord took Kim home, the first year was extremely difficult. It's uh, the level of grief and pain that you don't know what it's like until you've had to go through it. To be honest, there were times I didn't want to live. And I asked the Lord numerous times to take me home. 
because I felt the pain was unbearable. But whenever I got to a very low point, the Lord came along and kissed me. What do I mean? I mean, as they say in the, the South, he was loving on me. He was loving on me. I lost the love of my life and my wife. Oh, but the Lord's love, there's nothing like that love. Nothing, nothing like it when the Lord draws near and he kisses you with the kisses of his mouth. He tells you, I understand. He says to you, I, I, I knew it was going to cause you this pain. I knew how you would feel. And I want you to know you're still mine. And I'm still here. And I haven't cast you away. And I'm not punishing you. It's because I love you. That changes things. And all I can say is, you want more of it. You just want more of it. You want more displays of his affection. Mrs. Cairns called me a couple of days after Mr. Cairns, after my wife passed away. Mr. Cairns had been dead for, I guess, maybe, I don't know, nine months. And I didn't understand what she said at the time, but she said, I don't, and she said it with tears. She was breaking down. I don't want to lose what I've had with the Lord in this time period. The Lord had drawn so close to her. I understood later what she meant. That is the kiss of communion. And you can only say to the Lord, Lord, kiss me again and again and again. Assure me of your love. I'm prone to doubt, prone to, to wonder, because there's an enemy facing us all with our sins continually, quite happy to tell us that God has forsaken us altogether. What do we need? Lord, come, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Reassure me of your love. That's the kiss of communion. It's also found, and I take that word communion by the table. I don't know about you, but some of the sweetest times I've ever had in my church has been at the Lord's table. With me, it's never been a five-minute tag on at the end of the meeting. I've always preached at the table. 20 minutes, maybe. Just some verse that the Lord gave me that morning just to tell them about the love of Calvary, the love of Christ in some way, shape, or form. Some of the most precious times I've ever had in my congregations has been at that Lord's table, the table of communion. That's why the Puritans called it the love feast. Not just the dead ritual that we go through, but a love feast where the Lord comes alongside and shows us his love. There's also this kiss of restoration. How many times, I'm sure like me, you've lost track. How many times have we gone astray like lost sheep? That, that's David's last statement at the end of that long Psalm 119. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. 
Isn't that amazing? When you read all through Psalm 1, it's an amazing song. But he ends it there, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. How often have we walked down bypath meadow, away from that straight and narrow, taken a fire into our bosoms, thinking that we're not going to get burned by it, and we have been burned badly. How often have we found ourselves feeling something of what Paul felt when he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Years ago, I remember I was in Vancouver preaching on Romans chapter 7, that particular verse. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? One of the ways that the Romans killed someone, put them to death for some crime, they were really ingenious at slow deaths. They would take a dead corpse and bind it face to face to the live man. He would die that way. The corruption would creep over. Can you imagine that? That's the picture being set forth by Paul. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? But the Lord has come to us how many times with that kiss of restoration? He restoreth my soul. That's the Psalm 23. It means literally he brings back my soul. Sheep are prone to wander. We know that. And the Lord keeps bringing them back and bringing us back and bringing us back. It's the kiss of restoration. He never says to us, listen, you've gone astray too many times. I am done with you. He never does that. It's always, come on back. He restores our soul. There's a, a story I read a number of years ago about D.L. Moody and his little daughter, Emma, it was the only daughter he had. She was a, I'm sure you know what it's like to have kids like this. She woke up cross every morning. And because of that, she made life miserable for everybody else in the family. He told her that if she didn't correct her behavior, then he would have to correct her. Well, as you can imagine, Emma woke up and was cross again, making life miserable. When she was about to leave for school, she went up to her father that day and asked him for his usual kiss. But this time he would not kiss her, he said, because she had behaved quite badly that morning. But you have never refused to kiss me before, he said. But you have been naughty. You'll have to go to school without your kiss. She pled with her mother to get her father to kiss her. But while her mom assured her that her father still loved her, she repeated what her father had told her. You're not going to get a kiss this morning from dad. Moody wrote that when he heard her walking down the stairs to go to school, crying as if her heart would break, 
he couldn't hold back the tears. When he heard the door close, he said he went to the window and saw his little girl going down the street weeping. He said that he believed he felt worse than his little Emma and couldn't wait for her to come home that day. When she did come home, she finally came to him and told him how sorry she felt and asked him to forgive her. Moody wrote this, how gladly I took her up and kissed her and how happy she went upstairs to her bed. You may think that Moody was cruel to do what he did, but does not our Heavenly Father do the same thing with His children? Isn't that what is meant in Isaiah 54? He says to His people, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Isn't that what he meant? When you feel like the Lord has forsaken you because of your sin, those are the times when you want him to kiss you with the kisses of restoration. Those are the times. So it indicates that she believed that Christ truly loved her. But it also indicates something else. It indicates that she truly loves Christ. This desire she had for his kisses indicates that she truly loved Christ. She wants to experience the kisses of his mouth. What else is that but a revelation that she truly loves the Lord? You are, I imagine, if you're normal, and I assume everybody here tonight's normal, You are not the least bit interested in being kissed by someone you don't love. Right? You have no desire for such intimacy. Stay away, which is a clear sign that you have no interest in their displays of affection. Think about this in light of what you and I desired before the Lord saved us. Were we longing in those lost days, were we longing for Christ to come close to us? Uh, were we wanting intimacy with Jesus Christ? A close relationship with the Lord? Not on your life. We wanted the world to kiss us. We wanted its, 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 its love and its admiration and its affections and its acceptance and its applause and its pleasures and its treasures. That's what we wanted. Get near me. I want more of you. The last thing that we wanted was anything spiritual. It was all carnal. We love the world and we love the flesh. So it's only natural that you want to be near the things that you love. And you don't want intimacy with the things that you don't love. But all that changed when the Holy Spirit gave us a new heart. 
and we were born again. With a new heart, we got, we got new desires and we got new interests and we got new loves. The things we hated, now we love. The things we love, now we hate. We stopped viewing the world as our friend and lover and started looking upon the world as our enemy. True it is, the desires of the flesh didn't leave us. You can't reform the flesh. The flesh will always be the flesh. You can't improve upon the flesh. But God put in us new desires to oppose the flesh. He put the Holy Ghost within us to war against the flesh. You didn't have any fight with the flesh before the Lord saved you. It didn't bother you. Now if you've saved, if you've been saved, you've got a battle on your hands. You've got a war going on inside you because the Lord has loved you and you love the Lord. Haven't you found yourself in the place of prayer as you think about your sins and you're grieving over them? Lord, I don't want to grieve you. You're honest. It's not that you're afraid of some hammer falling on you or the, the great awful consequences of sin. That, that's something you should be afraid of, but that's not the real reason. It's because you've grieved the Lord. You've grieved the Lord that loves you and you don't want to grieve Him. Do you not see that's the clear indication that you love Him? You don't want to grieve those that you love. Oh, you grieve them. You husbands have grieved your wives, no doubt about it. And you wives have grieved your husband, no doubt about it. But you know what? You haven't delighted in doing that. And that's why you got back together and said, Honey, I'm sorry. Somebody did. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. That was thoughtless. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yeah. This is the higher relationship. This is the higher marriage. You'll read in Solomon's song of the believer's faults and failures, his backslidings and his blindness. But running right alongside those faults and flaws, you'll find that the believer always come back to the place where he longs for the kisses of his beloved. Her beloved. Love for him will grow cold. Christians will evil, even as we find in Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus, their love will grow cold at times as if they want the kisses of the world. They act like it at least. But if they are truly the Lord's, then they will come back to the place where they just want the Lord's kisses. Nothing else will do. <laughs> you know, once you've been kissed by Christ, there's no comparison. Nothing else will replace it. She begs for his kiss. Let him, let him, humbly, just a kiss, just a token, just a token that you love me. She's bold. What, what, what you say, that's pretty bold. I want him to kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. 
she was fervent. I mean, she was intense about this. You find that throughout the song. Now the reason in closing. The reason the Christian desires the kisses of Christ. For, that's purpose now, for thy love is better than wine. Again, we're dealing with poetry, right? So we've got to get behind the imagery. What does that mean? Thy love is better than wine. In, in the Old Testament, this, this word wine is, speaks of many things, but it expresses this, the, the, the numerous... Well, let, let, me, let me back up a minute. Love, I should point out before I even get there, love is in the plural form. Literally, it reads, thy loves, thy loves are better than wine. So the, the, the plural form in the Hebrew not only expresses, sometimes it does, multitude of things, but it also expresses the, the, the numerous virtues and dimensions and depth of the love. Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is plural. Happiness is literally. Happiness is. Oh, the happiness is of the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. You see, this this Shulamite has experienced Christ's loves, the expressions of his love for her. And she says, even when compared to wine, the drink in the Old Testament that is linked with joy and gladness and healing, Christ's love for her surpasses all of that. She has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And she wants more of it. She is saying that the love of Christ is more valuable and more desirable than the best entertainments this world can give. Matthew Henry acutely observes here, those only may expect the kisses of Christ's mouth and the comfortable tokens of his favor who prefer his love before all delights of the children of men who would rather forego those delights than forfeit his favor. Love means far more to me than anything this world can give. You know something, brothers and sisters? Christ loves to be loved by his people. He loves to love us. There's no doubt about that. He loves to love us. But he also loves to be loved by you. He wants you to say to him, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Lord, I want a more intimate relationship with you than I have right now. You've got to believe that you can get more intimate with him than you are. Do not think that you have arrived. You can get far more intimate with Jesus Christ than you are at present. There's always higher ground, folks. There's always greater closeness. So wouldn't it be a good thing as you commence this week with this first day to 
begin to ask the Lord regularly, Lord, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. Get closer to me and draw me closer to thee. Draw us and we shall run after thee, verse 4. May the Lord do that for his name's sake and for the good of your soul and the soul of this church. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's all pray. Our God and our Father in heaven, in the name of the King Jesus, we ask thee to seal the word to every soul that we will not forget. This desire thou hast for our love, nor the greatness of thy love for us. Draw us near, we pray. We long to know more intimacy with thee. If we're cold of heart, take the coldness away and bring the warmth of thy love in to melt it. Show us, O God, those tokens for good that lead us on to greater depths. Even as Paul prayed for the Ephesian church, that they would know the breadth and length and depth of height of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Answer that prayer abundantly for us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.